My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. And if you can't tell, I am still sick, unfortunately. Things just aren't going the way I wanted them to. But I had to record this even earlier than I normally would because your boy is going to be going to go suffer with Jesus, suffer for Jesus, I should say, at Disney World with my family. (laughs) So I am really hoping this clears up by the time I get down there because I would actually like to enjoy my vacation and enjoy time with my family. So that's how it's going to be. Uh, I should still be able to upload this at the regular time, even while I'm there. Um, but that's where it is. Uh, thank you again for your patience involving my voice, which has already sounded bad because of poor audio quality. I actually really like this mic, uh, which by the way, I, uh, let me double check. No, I believe this is the first time I'm recording for let nothing move you with this new microphone, which was donated by an anonymous listener. And I'm very grateful for their help. Uh, It is a pretty useful tool, one that it seems a little more simplified than what I had before. So it looks like this may be what I'm sticking with. Hopefully, we'll see how things go from here. So once again, thank you guys for your patience. I'm sorry for how I sound. There's literally nothing I can do about it without like resting and staying here. And that's not going to happen because I have a flight and a connecting flight to get to. And then I've got to, you know... Once again, I just got to suffer for Jesus at Disney. It's going to be so terrible. (laughs) Uh, What you may have noticed with the title of this episode is I've actually done two chapters here. And that's just part of, they're fairly short. And like, I could easily do one full episode for each, but you know, I just thought, why not combine the two and just have a lot of fun exploring what they both have to offer. I know there are some purists out there saying, well, you should stick to the way you're doing it. Well, uh, you're not going to like how I get to when we get to Exodus and Leviticus and even parts of Genesis before that and combining chapters, because it's just going to be better for me that way as I'm reading through them and explaining them. So that's where we're at. So we're going to be heading into Romans 4, starting with verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous excuse me, counts righteousness apart from works. As I hit my microphone there, that's lovely. (laughs) Uh, Just a bunch of follies here. It's going to be a great episode. I can already tell. Uh, Seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So we see here, uh, sorry for all that mess. I'm still getting used to the new setup. I hate the sound of my voice already, and I can't stand it right now when it's like this. But we'll struggle through it together. Abraham was righteous, wasn't righteous, because he did good in the world and had good works. He was found righteous by God because of his faith in God. This faith marked him as special in a world that had no faith in God outside of a select few at that time in history. Now, it's debatable whether or not certain members of his family, like Lot, had faith, 
But we do know of another individual at that time named Melchizedek who did serve God faithfully. The point of their stories is to show that they worship God in faith, and that set them apart from everyone else around them who had forgotten the God that had made them and desired to have a relationship with them. And in essence, Abraham here has no basis to boast about himself before God, excuse me, for standing right before him based on his works. But because Abraham believed, he was made righteous and not by doing. And it's the same way for us. Like we've spoken before, good works are called good because they are good to do, but they don't in and of themselves save us. It is that faith that has us come to him as broken people who need a savior. And then because of what we've received, go out in love and look after other people to do good works that shows our faith. It's a lot of concepts there I'm throwing at you. I know it can be a little overwhelming at first, but that's how it is. And we also see here, Paul uses the example of a worker being paid his wages for work as a way of showing that God does not gift us his gifts because of the work we have done. It is a free gift that cannot be earned by any strength or action of man. It is wholly undeserved, yet given to anyone, uh, excuse me, it's wholly undeserved, yet given to anyone because no one, it, but not given to anyone, sorry, Oy, I'm having a rough, rough time of it, people. We'll get through this. This, this free gift is wholly undeserved, but at the same time, it's because no one is able to be worthy of it by God's standards, yet he gives it to us anyways, knowing we're unworthy, knowing we will never be worthy. And to further his point, Paul even brings up David in his account of his own failings we find in the verses he quotes here from Psalm 32. And they're there to show just how even this man that is known as a man after God's own heart fell short because of his deeds. He had Uriah murdered on his command. He slept with Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah. He led a census that God told him not to do that caused the deaths of the people around him. He didn't discipline his children as well as he should have, which led to civil war and a lot of other very terrible things. Yet he is still counted as righteous, not because of his deeds, but because of his faith, because his deeds alone would still cause God to punish him. But his faith saved him and he would be rewarded far beyond what he deserved. Next up, we'll be going through uh, verses 9 through 12. Now, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who, who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul continues his diatribe uh, against the idea of circumcision being necessary for salvation through applying a simple bit of history and logic. Abraham was called righteous by God two chapters before the covenant of circumcision was made. This He's called righteous in uh, Genesis 15.6. The covenant for circumcision is brought up in Genesis 17. If circumcision was a requirement for being saved, for being righteous, then God has contradicted himself by calling Abraham righteous before making the covenant. And God can't do that by his very nature. Even more egregious, 
This also means that no other human being before then could have been saved, as we have no evidence of circumcision existing for our biblical uh, patriarchs and so on and so forth uh, before Genesis 17, which means we have denied Adam, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and many more from heaven, and not even mentioning the fact that circumcision doesn't happen to women in the Jewish tradition. So we're discounting Eve and plenty of other people who we don't know where they stood. Outside of a select few that we are, uh, the writer of Hebrews does call as faithful, we see him, uh, this writer of Hebrews, talk about Abel, Enoch, and Noah for being praised for their faith. So I can pretty much say they got in, which tells me, oh, they got in without being circumcised. It's the same way Paul is bringing it up here. It's not a requirement. It had a purpose. That purpose doesn't exist in the same way now. We also see Paul here uh, talk about circumcision as a, as a public act of faith done by Abraham as part of his relationship with God. The act alone didn't make him righteous, but it confirmed his earlier righteousness because of his faith and following through with what God had ordained. It is very much like baptism in that it doesn't save a soul, but it is used as a way of publicly displaying our newfound faith of God. Now, I really don't want anyone out there publicly displaying that. Uh, yeah, you'll end up on a list, and I, I'd rather that it didn't happen to anyone. But you know, you know what I mean, using baptism as uh, an image here. It's that idea. It is, it is physical proof of an inward change, hopefully, is the desire. And with that, we'll go through 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence to things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul here points us to those who have received the promise God gave to Abraham to establish his descendants as mighty and uncountable by human means, while also making him the father of many nations. Uh, this happens in Genesis. We will get there. After we're done with Romans, we'll get a little more in depth into what that means there. But not only is this something that points to Israel, remember he says many nations, and even Judea, excuse me, Judah and Israel do not count as many because then that's just still just two nations. But it also points to Christians of all races who are spiritual children of Abraham following the same faith that made him righteous. As far as I am aware, I have not done a DNA test. There is no Jewish uh, ancestry in my blood. Be kind of cool if it was, but at the end of the day, that doesn't matter because God has made me his spiritual descendant. 
of Abraham in that I've accepted that same faith that he has in who God is and the promises that he's made for me and not just me, but everyone around me as well. And Abraham himself had faith in the impossible, that God would allow him and Sarah to have a child when they were way past their expiration date for doing so. This faith is what also counts him as righteous. We too believe in the impossible. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead and covers the sins of those who turn to him so that we may be with God. But the impossible is only impossible for us. Abraham saw that God could go beyond Abraham's finite human understanding, and we should do the same. Next up, we'll be going through chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in ourselves. Excuse me. We, wrong word. <laughs> wrong word there. We, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time God died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Being justified by faith means we are no longer enemies of God, and instead we are counted as his family and have the ability to live at peace with him. You, you understand just how great that is? To live at peace with God, to not be under that uh, righteous wrath, it's a wonderful thing. Once again, that's not why we do it, just to be safe from that. But it's one of the greatest perks we have by saying yes to him, by knowing what love really is, by turning to him. This is why Paul tells us to rejoice at this glorious news, because it shows us the fullness of God's love in that we were his enemies. And yet through Jesus' sacrifice, we are made his family, his friends, those who he sent his son to die for. And there is something to say here about when Paul speaks of uh, hope and all that, about people being too optimistic for their own good. I know plenty of people out there who didn't let anything get them down and they just move on with life. And some of that is very inspiring, but there's also a limit. In the same way, like there's an accusation that's been thrown out against me, some of it rightly so, that I'm the exact opposite and the pessimist, which when done poorly is also equally as harmful as being too optimistic for your own good. Now me, uh, because I just have to be different. I prefer to think of myself as an optimistic pessimist, which is a word that doesn't exist, but I'm using it anyway because this is my show. And all that means is that when I do things in my life, when I think about what's coming ahead, I do my best to think about what I what I want to desire to happen. Like I would like to have, you know, uh, let's just say better grades, it's, or I would like to have money or whatever, or I would like to be able to have more opportunities to spread the gospel. 
There we go. That's a good one. It's like, sure. Excellent. Good idea. But I also, at that same time, prepare myself for how things could go poorly in order to deal with the fallout that should occur. Like there have been plenty of opportunities just in this last year where I've talked to people about the gospel and my intent is like, hey, my desire is I want them to be saved. I want them to see the light. And at best, sometimes, based on who I'm talking to, I also know, hmm, they might take this in a wrong way. So I should be prepared when they throw whatever against me. And because I've been prepared, I've been able to take it. So that's just my personal philosophy there. You can have your own. You don't have to be the way I am. You're probably better off not. <laughs> but to specifically peak, uh, peak, speak of what Paul is talking about here is the need for us to have hope in more than ourselves. We are going to suffer in this life. And if anyone tells you differently, I want you to run as far away as you can in the other direction from that heresy. It has no place in the gospel. Look, any fool can look at the world and see how bad it is. But we are called to see more than that. Our temporary suffering here on this world should help teach us how to endure past it. And this then creates character that is learned from the past and then applies it into the present and the future, which then creates a hope that there is something more to this life. This is not a false hope. This is not a fairy tale we just made to feel better about all the bad things happening around us. Because we know of the true hope, that comes from God's saving grace that cannot be ever be overtaken or destroyed even in our worst moments. And we see here too, Jesus, recognizing our weakness, came down to feel our weakness in the form of being both human and divine, and he did so for our benefit. Even better, to a deal that already sounds pretty dang good, Paul rightly states that Jesus came to die for the sake of people who didn't deserve it, yet he offered himself freely in the hope that people would see his redeeming light and come to him. You know that Jesus hopes too? He hopes that everyone comes to him. He knows not all will, but there's a hope there. And if you have a 100% guarantee all the time in life, which we don't, well, there's no reason to just have hope. You know, it's going to happen. Oh, that was lovely. Yeah. So, yeah, the point being, his hope for us is different than our hope. He knows it's going to happen. And I don't know if I just contradict myself there. That's the medication talking, my bad. It, it is a hope that we will come to him. And hope can come even knowing the result for him because he still wants the best for us. I hope I circled back to the right thoughts there because I went off script real bad. <laughs> and I shouldn't be talking when I'm brain addled. So if I need to clarify something later on to call me out on it, I'll do it on the next episode. But look at him. His love for us was so strong that it overcame the righteous wrath of God that was brought out against us and allowed us this hope, this new hope in him allows us to be one with God through his noble sacrifice. That is the true hope of the gospel, that there is something more than me, that I don't have to do it on my own. There's nothing I have to do to work for it. Now we go through verses 12 through 21, and we have to get through some some dicey Greek here. So this is definitely not the best time for me to be talking about it, but I'll do my best. Uh, verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where it, there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, 
who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And a free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. From Adam, we were all born and because of the sin that Eve and he both participated in, we are born as enemies of God, filled with a broken, depraved body that knows nothing of what love, righteousness, or justice truly are without help. It didn't matter who God made first. It didn't matter if God had made me first, if he had made you first. The end result, if either one of us had been the first human, it wasn't Adam. It was me. I would have made the same decision he did. I would have made that mistake, assuming that choice, I should say, of wanting to be like God, knowing good and evil. Everyone would have done the same thing. It didn't matter because we want to see ourselves be like God. That temptation to do so wasn't a sin. Temptation itself is not a sin like we've covered before in Luke, but following through with it was and as a result, we are all covered by that sin without God's intervention. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross, to take that away from those who would say yes to him, because there's nothing we can do on our own to get rid of it. And we also see here, Adam is called a type of the one who was to come, because he serves as a bit of a, a figurehead of the one who gave birth to humanity. He's all, one who we all came from. Jesus, however, becomes the spiritual father of the many who will be redeemed by his sacrifice. Paul parallels the brokenness of our mutual human ancestor to the spiritual ancestor of our faith for those who believe to show how powerful the work Jesus did on the cross actually was. And now it's time to get into the Greek, <laughs> which some of you may know I, I am studying right now. So this is proving useful, but if I get anything wrong, that's because of my own ignorance in this regard, and I apologize. Now, let us cover the fact that some will use these verses as a way to promote universalism. And those who don't know, that is the idea that one day all will seek reconciliation with God. It's a beautiful idea. And to some, it's even a comforting idea because they don't like the idea of people spending eternity in hell. It's not a nice thing. And you have other people as well who uh, believe in stuff like annihilationism, which is the idea that eventually for those who are condemned to hell, their souls will be no more, and it'll be like they never existed in the first place. I don't like either one, to be perfectly honest with you, because I don't see the justice being done in getting rid of someone for all time who has denied God forever and ever. Well, why shouldn't they stay forever and ever in their sin and their denial under God's judgment? I also don't like the idea of someone who has never once said to God, hey, 
I recognize my sin. I recognize my failings. Forgive me of what I've done. I want to be yours. And then God saying to that person who has never once said yes to him, all right, you scallywag, you know, you get on in here, you know, you got it a little later than others, but you know, even though you didn't say yes, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you in. That sounds entirely out of character to me. And what's the point of judgment and wrath if there is no consequence to it? And there'll be some people out there to say, well, you're just too mean. (laughs) And you, you just want these bad things to happen to people. It's like, I don't want them to happen to people. I want people to do the exact opposite. I want them to see who they truly are and then turn away from it like I have done. I don't want to be the old man that I was before he came into my life and changed me from who I used to be. I want to be better, but that's me. Not everyone has that in them. So let's actually look at these verses here. Now, earlier in Romans 3, we saw the Greek word pontes being used to describe the whole of humanity. In verse 12, for uh, Romans 5, we see pontas being used to describe all human beings born uh, in death under sin. And later in that same verse, pontes returns to describe how all humans have sinned. It's all these different paradigms in Greek. I'm not going to get through how they all work. Just know that they do. It's a good language. It's a beautiful language. I'm just dumb. It, it, it is how it is. And I'm working to be better about that. So we see all is the word pontes there. All were born in death under sin, and all will uh, have sinned. So, like I said, we see Pontes return to the book in verse 18, where we see that this signifies that through one man all were condemned, and later on in that same verse, through one man all can receive life. If we take this to mean that all men are equally saved by this action, then Paul has made himself out to be a liar. Because in verse 17, he mentions this can only happen to those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. And this is furthered again in verse 19, where instead of using the word for all, Paul instead uses the word for the many, which is poloi, which originates from the word polos, to describe how the many were made sinners by Adam's disobedience. And the many had the opportunity to choose the free gift thanks to the obedience of the one man who offers to save them from themselves. Now again, Adam here serves as the representative of humanity, and from him all were condemned. Jesus, serving as the representative of those who take the free gift he offers uh, that he offers, he redeems the many, but not all. Recall that in Romans three, Paul calls the wait, uh, yeah, Paul calls the wages of sin death, but the free gift is not earned or deserved, yet given as an option to everyone, but not all who hear about the free gift will take it. I mean, let's even look at our lives. It's not going to be a one to one. But there's been plenty of times before when we've said no to a gift, like there were no strings attached. Say, hey, have this. And we've said no for whatever reason. We chose not to take that free gift. There's nothing inherently wrong with taking that gift, but we chose not to anyway. In the same way, there are people who are offered the free gift of salvation, yet still reject it. No matter how many times you bring it to them, no matter how many arguments you have about the greatness of God and his goodness, they still reject it. Also, we see Going back to verse 17, many people are led to righteousness, but not all continue towards it. Like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. Or have an egg that parable uh, that goes. It's the same way. Like I can lead someone there to the cross and say, look, this is the defining moment of humanity. Jesus dying for our sins, coming back to life, saving us from ourselves. And I say, that's that's a good story, man. But I'm not about that. I don't want to change. And they never will. And I hate saying that out loud. It's not fun. It's not good. It's not wholesome. It's, it's reality. 
And that's something you'll have to struggle through. And then some people will come to very different conclusions than what I read. And they'll take the many to also mean all. And that's just how they interpret the Greek. And that's the unfortunate thing about going from one language to another is that we don't fully understand it. Even those who do speak and read ancient Greek, like we're still arguing about how things are pronounced, how things are supposed to be worded. Because guess what? The ancient Greeks aren't alive. So there is in their minds wiggle room there. I don't see the wiggle room. I flat out deny that there's any wiggle room, but they're still there and they're still seeking answers. And that's one thing I'm, you're all going to have to do as well. That's where I came to my conclusions. Thanks to way smarter people than me who helped me to understand this. And as I read it, I take what they said, go it by what I know of God. And that's the conclusion I came at. So where did you draw your conclusion at? Let me know. Uh, is there part of my argument you think is flawed? Is there something I can improve better? Is there someone on my side that says, hey, you worded it like this? You really should have worded it like this? Sure. Let me know. If you don't agree with what I say, let me know. I am more than happy to have that conversation. Like, uh, uh, give me some time because I'll definitely have forgotten it by the time we talk again because my memory is not that well. But we both take the time to learn this. That's good to me. I mean, oh, no, I have to read the Bible again. How terrible. So that's where we left. So thank you for listening to Romans 4 and 5. Oh, oh sorry. There was one more thing I forgot to say. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so out of it. So another thing to note here, he said, obviously planning to do this correctly, is that Jesus, Jesus himself was born as a member of the many, but not the all, because he remains free from sin. Otherwise, his death on the cross would do nothing for us. If Jesus is sinful, if Jesus had given in to the temptations given by Satan, we see in the Gospels, then he's illegitimate. There's no way he can die on the cross and cover us because he's just as bad as the rest of us. He himself was freed from the condemnation of the sins of humanity due to his divine nature. So if he was born, which he was, we've already covered that in Luke, he himself cannot be counted across uh, among the all because it doesn't make sense for him. He's part of the many. Now, even here further, our Catholic brothers and sisters will likewise use this verse as justification for how Mary herself can be born free from sin. And as it doesn't specify all of humanity, which they would be right to say so, it uses the many there, meaning that there has to be some who weren't. And that would obviously, in my case, the argument would be Jesus, and they would argue for Mary. I obviously respectfully disagree. As we have just seen in Luke alone, how Mary was just as human as the rest of us and likewise needed the Savior. Her not knowing why Jesus was here. Her and the rest of his uh, siblings demanding that he stop doing what he's doing. That's not what a righteous person does. Now, this is not what's in our Catholic bashing session. And if it ever turns into that, I need to know because I need to word things better. I need to be more gracious to our brethren. But I'll leave this for all of you to make your own conclusions. Look, obviously, I feel very strongly about what I do. Otherwise, I wouldn't say it out loud. If I didn't have an opinion, I would say, hey, I think I might be here, but I'm not there yet. So I don't know. I know this is where it is. Drawing from the conclusions that scripture gives me about who God is, what he did for us. That's where I stand on all this. Where do you stand? Let me know, please. If you have the chance to leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice to help with us with the ratings. Thanks again to everyone who's done that already. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Amazon Ministries Podcasting Network. You can contact me at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. 
I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. With all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.